How is everyone doing today? All right, let me move this guy up here. Okay. You can open up to the book of Zephaniah. One of the, uh, the last books in your Old Testament. I can't get the entirety of my person on this chair. There we go. There we go. Keep situated. Zephaniah chapter 3. There's a substantial amount of men missing from our service today. The Highlander. Is that my baby? No? Okay. Things are okay. So, um, since so many men are absent, I thought we'd talk about feelings and <laughs> babies and love and uh, yeah, maybe drink some tea, some scones. That sounds fabulous. Who doesn't love scones? Ugh. You don't like scones? Oh, terrible. You're a, you're a bad person. Linda makes these scones. Are they like cranberry lemon scones? Ah, lose my mind over those scones. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Zephaniah 3, and uh, let's read the text. Verse 17, and then we will pray. Zephaniah 3:17 says, The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning that we're able to share together. Lord, this opportunity to get into your word. Lord, to sit at your feet and to see what you would desire to, to speak to us this morning. Lord, what a, a wonderful time it is to be with our family. Lord, and just to draw close to you, Lord, to fall more in love with you, Lord, to learn of you, to learn with you. We praise you, Lord. And trust all these things into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. Have you ever read the right verse at just the right time and it completely changed uh, your perspective? On something, and, and since we're talking about perspective, I tried to use the word liberally uh, uh, throughout <laughs> throughout the message. Um, so you, you will be hearing it a lot. Sam began this series last Sunday. Um, uh, I was away at an auction for work, but I listened to it on the Facebook. Uh, good message, great series, and uh, I'm excited to share with you this morning about this distinct perspective. Uh, just the right verse at the right time, and it's a tough time. It is for Israel. Uh, they, they, they'd become idle and, and wandering. Um, they were unfocused and inconsistent. And uh, they, they'd become distant and in their relationship with God, uh, estranged from him. And Zephaniah's name testifies to this fact. His name in Hebrew means Yahweh hides. And the thinking during this time was such that uh, we've wandered so far that even if we did want to seek him, uh, where would we find him? He's hidden himself from us. And, and I don't know if you've ever felt like that. I, I think that we can often feel like that. It's easy to fall into that when we feel 
uh, distant from God and we're going through a difficult period of time with God when things can be uh, gloomy and we can feel lonely and, and, and it's as if God himself wants nothing to do with us. He's disappointed in us and down on us. Now, let me be honest with you. And uh, I always try to be honest with you whenever I, whenever I share. Uh, I, I used to attend a church, and it seemed like the Godhead at that church was like Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Pastor. And they were all lumped together in this perfectly divine package where you had a man that stood up before you, and, and he was altogether uh, right and righteous. And, and you know what? That's not reality. We all have issues. We all have struggles. And, and so I try uh, to, to, to always share w- with a, a degree of transparency. Um, and, and so uh, in addition to that, Sam isn't here. So it's a good it's a good opportunity uh, to talk about some things. Um, so so Sam isn't here. And, and last Sunday, uh, maybe some of you noticed um, it was yet another week when I had to be elsewhere, and I missed yet another service. And it just seems like these things had been consistently piling on. It was one after another, and, and I. I, I thought that my only option seemed to be to just tender my resignation here at Genesis in all terms of service, just to say, hey, you know what, I can't do it, so I'm not going to do it, and I'm just a terrible, rotten human. And I, uh, I got a text together, um, it was a very large phone that I was imitating on, you don't normally text on a phone like that. Uh, but but I, I was texting a, a message to Sam, and I compiled this message. It was a it was like a five part message. It was quite lengthy, but but I I don't know how to limit my vernacular. So I showed it to uh, Boo, and Boo looked at me, and she said, "You know what? You're being too hard on yourself. You're trying to do everything, and you're realizing that you have limitations, and you're disappointed by that conclusion, right? And she was she was right, but I'm not going to tell her that." You know, let's be real. I'm a married man. You can't give your wife that kind of leverage. She'll use it against you. Um, so I grunted at her, and I rolled over, and I went to bed. And, and that was that. But still being stubborn, you know, last Thursday, I, I, I uh, said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to tell them that, that I'm no good, right, that, that I'm a rotten kid, that I've failed God, and I've failed his people, and I can't do everything, and because I can't do everything, I ought to just do nothing and I desire to do more than my schedule would allow, and I'm sick of letting everyone down, and, uh, and, and that, that's, that's, that's the way that I, I felt. I felt uh, disillusioned, uh, d- discouraged, and downcast, and probably more alliterated synonyms that I can't think of at the moment. It was, it was a bad time, and, and, and I know I sound like a drama queen, and some of you are, are looking at me and going, you know, just because... All the men are gone doesn't mean that you have to be so emotional, you know. But, but, but it sincerely bothered me. And I began to manifest uh, a troubling uh, physiological symptoms uh, that, that could only be characterized as an ulcer. And, and you know, it, it, it was, there was a physical pain, a psychological pain, and a spiritual pain. And I've had to eat salads as a result of the physical pain and stave off coffee, you know, uh, to accompany it. And it's terrible. I was talking to Boo this morning. First time I've ever taught without coffee. This is it. This is since I was 16 years old. That was the first time I taught. 
no coffee. I know Kareen is looking at me and going, terrible. How do you do it? I don't know. It's, it's, uh, I, I drank water this morning. And, uh, but, you know, that, that helped the physical discomfort. There was nothing to satiate my, my soul. Uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was just terrible. And, and, but here, I'm, I'm moving towards a conclusion. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, it didn't have anything to do with Sam. It really didn't. I, I realized that when I approached him on Thursday to tell him. And he, he came towards me with a big smile on his face and nothing but goodwill in his heart. Uh, just a loving, wonderful person. I realized that it had everything to do with God. And, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. Uh, because I don't think that I'm the only one that can feel this way from time to time. Uh, guilty and lacking and, and subpar in one sense or another, uh, for the good that, that we want to do, but we don't do. And we feel sometimes as if we can't do. Or, or for maybe the bad that we don't want to do, but we do anyways. And it weighs heavy upon us and causes us to have a perspective that is detrimental and devastating spiritually. I, I begin to think, God, what must you think of me? You know, you see all of my shortcomings, and I feel condemned by them. How you must hide yourself from me in my day as you hid yourself from Israel in Zephaniah's day. And when I feel that way, often, I, uh, and, and when I eventually stop being a drama queen and get out of my head you know, and, and get on my knees... I hear you know, the always loving voice of the Lord uh, just say, Michael, you're being stupid. Yeah, and, and, and he says, I wasn't hiding in Zephaniah's day. I'm certainly not hiding in your day. I'm not disappointed with you. I love you. And listen, I adore the Minor Prophets. I don't know how frequently you, you spend time in the Minor Prophets, but they're usually pretty heavy books. And for all the times that, that I have read the Minor Prophets, I don't remember ever noticing this astounding verse near the end of this little leather. Leather, not leather. Mine's bounded leather. It's faux leather, though. And, and Zephaniah speaks here of a God that, that doesn't see my struggle as an exercise in futility. And he isn't frustrated with me. He's actually singing over me. Right? And through the, the muck and the mire and everything else, he's rejoicing over the salvation of his son. Right? And that's, that's the perspective that I want to talk about today. And, and, and it's this, if you are a note taker, to write down. It's not what I see when I look at me. It's what God sees when he looks at me. I think that's a really necessary perspective to maintain through our Christianity. It's often not the perspective that I choose in my Christianity. It's easy for me to look at one thing and condemn myself. But I'm looking at a person that God has already saved, that God is in the process of sanctifying. 
that God loves passionately, deeply, and distinctly according to this text. We're going to adopt this vantage point for this morning's study, lest we deviate to more devastating vantage points. I want to share with you five perspective points from this passage. And the first one begins in verse 17. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst. And for some of us, that makes us very uncomfortable. That God himself is in our midst. And it's a little emasculating, and I don't like to talk about it, uh, but, um, but I'm going to. Uh, when, when I'm at work, you know, we, we have these wonderful chairs. I don't know what your chair situation's like at work. But we have these wonderful chairs that lean back. And, um, you know, there's a child in front of me, and he's working, he's doing his thing, whatever he might be doing. And, and it's, it's easy for me to just lean back in my chair and start staring off into nowhere and spacing out. And I begin to think of, you know, which clients I need to follow up with and what I want to have for lunch. And I begin to space out, thinking about, it's okay, Miles, I love you. I think about you too. And I begin to think about, you know, emails that need to be sent and jumbo jacks that need to be consumed and all the rest of it. I can't consume them because of my stomach. <laughs> and and, and my, my mind just wanders all over the place. And, and then something will happen my boss will pass through the room. And it's an immediate reaction. It's completely instinctive. I, I sit up straight, and all of a sudden I focus in on my child, eyes wide open and, and ears that are attentive to listen, and, and they could be saying something terribly dull and mundane, and it's the most fascinating thing in the universe because it's what's before me immediately, and it's what I'm paid to pay attention to and, and all of this. And, 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 and it's necessary for me. It's difficult for me to admit, but it's a fact of my existence. I'm at my best as an employee when she is near. It causes me uh, to focus on what's really important. Right? It's, it's the first thing uh, that God tells us to realign our perspective, to realign our focus. I am here, right? I'm near. And let's focus on what is really important. And it's not uh, the, the, it's, it's not the email that, that we forgot to send yesterday, or it's not what you're doing tomorrow or the day after that. He is here, he's eternal, and he's saying, listen, everything's okay. Everything's okay. It doesn't matter what you're going through. Right? You can be confident that you're not going through it alone. Uh, David writes about this in Psalm 139, verse 7. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn... I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. And when I realize that he's always there, it changes not only uh, the way that I look at every activity, but it changes the way that I perform, even the most mundane of them. He's here with me. 
And he begins that way. So it begins only with proximity, but he doesn't want to leave it there. He, he reassures us of his presence, then he, then he gives us a promise. You see the second part of verse 17, the mighty one will save. He's not just here to observe, he's here to save. And being a nerd, I've always liked the way that Martin Luther put it. Uh, Martin Luther said, the life of Christianity consists of possessive pronouns. So he is not a savior, he is my savior, and he is my Lord. Right? He desires to be more than present, he desires to be active in my life. He desires to be my Lord, and an able uh, or in order for him to be able to do that, he needs my permission. Right? He wants uh, more than just this moment in time. And when we see the word save, we think about that moment in time. We think about one moment 2,000 years ago where something was accomplished and now we're saved. But this is active. He's constantly here and he's constantly ready to, ready to save. And he's, so he's constantly desiring our permission for ongoing sanctification. And every moment, none of it an accident, every last bit of it an opportunity for me to reach out for salvation, for transformation, for him to accomplish this work in my life, this work that only comes through him. But most of the time, I don't give in. Right? Most of the time, I want to figure things out myself. And so I set out in my own effort, and I try, and I get frustrated, and I write text messages, and my wife tells me not to send text messages, and then my stomach hurts. And, and she says, and I say, you know, things need to be done. And she says, well, why don't you just, you know, pray about it and let God take care of it. And I make myself sick, stressing out about it before I realize that God is in my midst, perfectly able to save, and I won't let him. And some of us, we've been spinning our wheels for so long. Uh, we really need to hear that. Because this could be the story of the entirety of our Christianity. That God is in our midst, perfectly able to save, and we simply will not let him. How, how stupid is that? How silly is that? How, how do we do that? I want to do it for him so often. I want to do it instead of him so often. You know, we... And, and, and I'm completely unable to. I mean, we, we have this, we have a sparklets guy. He drops off the water receptacles at our work. And they're big, they're heavy. You've seen them. We have one outside. And uh, whenever he drops them off, invariably all the six-year-old boys want to show me how strong they are. And they run over to the, the sparklets thing and they, you know, they pick it up and they're like, I could do this, just stand back. And I, I look at them hoping that they will come to the conclusion uh, that, that is correct before there's a terrible mess that, that ensues all over the floor. You know? and, and, and so often they don't. And they, they look at the jug and they pick it up and they're like, you know, stand back, I got this. And they pop the top off. And I'm thinking, ah, this is going to end just really poorly. And, and then they, you know fumble around with it and they try and lift it onto the thing and it slips off and now there's water everywhere gushing all over the floor and there's panic in their eyes and 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 I look at them and I just think was I not here the entire time 
I mean, it, given their, their body weight and their muscle mass, it's, it's a mathematical impossibility that they would be able to do this. It could only end in calamity. That's it. That's, that's the only logical end. To, to the, but, but they do it anyways. That mess was inevitable. And I look at them and I say, I think this mess was also completely avoidable. Because I was here the entire time. But so often, so many of my messes are exactly the same way. They're inevitable. And they're completely avoidable. And I don't grow out of this. We don't grow out of this so often. We just, we wait far too long and try far too hard before we're willing to concede and admit that we need help. And yet, as we do, we, we have a God that isn't there to, to chide us and mock us and say, well, you fool, you knew you couldn't do it. You know, you look at your, your spiritual weight and your spiritual muscle mass and your life could only end in calamity. He's so gentle with us. He's so caring towards us. This is the reason why he's here. Not for a moment, for the entirety of our existence. He is here to save. And now third, he will rejoice over you with gladness. Now sit and ponder that for a second. Let's exercise our intellectual faculties. Is there, is there anything that we could possibly accomplish in this life that should make him glad? Yeah, I think about like Einstein, uh, you know, uncovering general relativity, and, and to us, a monumental human accomplishment. To God, that must have been like, oh, that's cute. It's really not a big deal. You know, he would respond to it. I would think the same way that I would respond to my kids at work when they draw an elephant on the whiteboard or something. And I'm like, oh, okay, it looks like a fat anteater with big ears. There's nothing special about that. You know? It's it's it doesn't seem like a big deal, but there's no accomplishment that should make him glad, but he is. Right? He's glad in you, in me, right? He loves us. It's a mystery to me. And and consider this fact. If he loved us while we were rebelling sinners. How much more reasonable is it to accept the fact that he should love us as struggling saints? Yet how often is your perspective the opposite of that? We think, well, he loved me then, but now the expectation is so much greater, and I fall so far short of perfection. He must be utterly frustrated with me all the time. He loved me then, He's over me now. And Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us then, in fact, to prove that he could love us under the worst possible circumstances, that he would always love us, that his love for us would never waver. He says, I will trace it back to your worst moment. I choose to love you then so that you will never doubt my love for you at any moment after that. Hebrews 12.2 says, 
fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy of the cross. That is one of the most absurd things in all of the Bible to think about. There should be no joy in the cross. It is the worst implement of torture ever devised by man. And he went to that cross joyfully if it meant that he would be able to be with you on the other end of it. That was the joy that drove him there. That he desires to be in your midst. He's perfectly able to save if you would only choose. And that choice is made. There is nothing separating from you your singular source that brings him this great satisfaction. Corey, what's going on? He joys over you. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you're going through. He rejoices. Even for this moment where you're sitting here looking at Corey do stuff. And, uh, and, and he's waiting uh, for you to simply bend towards him, to accept this gift from him. Uh, and, and, and it's all a joy uh, for you which is maybe the most essential thing to take away from this point. Not for your good deeds, for any of your accomplishments. It's simply you. So, the next point. He will quiet you with his love. And no matter how many times I consider it, my response is always the same. When I consider the great love of God, all that's left is silence. You know, one thing that's eluded me lately is rest. And that's what this thing really speaks about. That's what this point is all about. He will quiet us with his love. My priorities are often pulling me in just a million different directions. And this is perspective. When he just says, just quiet, just peace, just silence, settle down. My mind is always going and, and, and there's rarely rest He says it's his love that will give us that rest, that will give us that quiet. Have you ever been so overwhelmed by love that you just, you can't speak? Where it just seems like silence is the only logical response to it. Um, I remember when when I proposed to Corinne, I don't know if I've told this story before. Corinne says I haven't. I feel like I have. No? You say no? Okay. Get ready. It's a schmaltzy one. Um, so, but I remember when, when I proposed it to Corinne, uh, initially I wanted to do it at Jack in the Box. Um, it, was, it was actually under construction, uh, so I couldn't do it there. I really did because that was our first date. We went to Jack in the Box, so I was like, I, w- I want to propose at Jack in the Box. And, uh, but that didn't work out, so I had to come up with something that was actually nice. Um, and, and I'm a very sentimental guy. I, I, I have all these things that I've saved over the years. Uh, and letters that, that she had written to me in high school that, that I'd saved. And I'd look over as time passed. And uh, tokens that I'd collected from significant moments together and, and all this. And all the, the week before I proposed, I, every day we'd get together and I would, you know, 
reveal some of my more tender side and show her some of these things. And, and we'd talk about it, and I'd, I'd tell her how I felt about her. And on the last night uh, of the week, it was a conversation that I had printed out. Uh, it was an instant message conversation that we were having while she was actually overseas, I believe, right? You were in Singapore during that time. And uh, we weren't dating, and, and I was hopelessly in love with her. But I couldn't tell her that in any way that wasn't absurdly sarcastic. Um, so I did that. And, and it was this conversation where I was telling her how I felt about her as a joke. And she took it as a joke. And, but uh, on that day, I, I put it before a note, the conversation that I'm sure she had long since forgotten about. And I told her, you know, this is all... This is true. This is how I feel about you, and I love you. And then I put the box on top of the note as we you know, lie there on the beach. And I opened it up, and I, I said, you know, will you marry me? Will you be my wife? And silence. She didn't say anything for so long that I really thought she was going to say no. <laughs> it really it began to trouble me. I, I, I didn't understand that sort of reaction to, to love, because I, I'm usually uh, you know, not at a loss of words until my baby was born. Uh, you know, when, we, when we were there in the delivery room and he, and he was born, I didn't say anything. I couldn't say anything. And it was, it was at least 15 minutes. It felt like an eternity, just staring at him, just so overwhelmed by love that the only response that felt appropriate was silence quieted by love, overwhelmed with gratitude. Who is this God that loves us so extravagantly? That's the point of this passage, is, is to quiet you, is to get you to conceptualize a God that has this distinctly unique perception of you. That this is the way he perceives you. And finally, the most amazing portion of this text, maybe, is the last bit. He will rejoice over you with singing. You know, it's amazing that we come here every Sunday at the other building every Thursday, and we sing, and we sing to God. Well, sometimes we sing to God. Sometimes we just stare at the words up there, and other times we talk to people or wander around getting coffee or looking at Facebook or whatever we're doing. But we think that this is, this is our worship. We're singing to God. The incredible thing to consider, this, the thing that I never thought to consider, is the fact that he is singing to us. This is what Spurgeon writes about this text. There has to be at least one Spurgeon bit in here. He did not sing when he made the world. No, he looked upon it and simply said that it was good. The angels sang. The sons of God shouted for joy. Creation was very wonderful to them. But it was not much to God, who could have made thousands of worlds by his mere will. Creation could not make him sing. When all was done, and the Lord saw what had become of it in the salvation of his redeemed, then he rejoiced after a divine manner. Creation doesn't make him sing. You do. You know, it's hard to stop thinking about it once you start because it's such an unusual thought to have about your God. 
as you visualize how he's acting around you. A God that quiets you so that he can soothe you with his song. You know, that in the silence you hear this melodic voice, the song of the Savior for his beloved. It's a lullaby for a weary soul. I came home a couple of weeks ago and uh, it sounded like there was a crime scene happening in the house. And it usually doesn't sound like that. Uh, it's usually quite quiet when I come home. Um, but Miles was screaming and, and I cringed just hair on the end. And she, she had come to the conclusion that, that he just didn't like her anymore. <laughs> she was just frazzled beyond belief. And so I, you know, very heroically took Miles um, and, and said, oh, I, uh, you just relax, I'll calm him down. And so then he just screamed at me you know, <laughs> for the next hour or so. Uh, but he was, he was hungry but he wanted to sleep, and he wanted to sleep, but he was hungry. So it's just this vicious cycle. He wanted to do things, but he didn't know what he wanted to do, so he chose to just scream instead of accomplish anything. And, <laughs> you know, I've been there. I get it, right? <laughs> just frustrated and confused with life, and so the only logical thing is to just yell and lash out violently. <laughs> and so... And so um, I, I began pacing the house with him, and and whenever I would stop to rock him, uh, he would just start screaming again. So I began to do uh, the only thing that that instinctively I felt was right to do, which was to sing to him. And because you know I didn't have a normal childhood where I grew up around like lullabies and children's songs and stuff. I started singing Johnny Cash songs to him. <laughs> and, uh, and then I ran out of those songs, and I started singing Bob Dylan songs to him. And he would get, you know, fussy when I would stop, so I would scramble for new songs. And I'm very ashamed to admit that I started singing Metallica songs to him <laughs> before I realized that I could be singing worship songs to him. Um, I, someone actually just said, there you go, that's right. And, but it was worship songs that, that when I began to sing those songs, his, his soul settled, his eyes closed, and he was finally able to rest. That's it there? I knew I was talking about him. He's finally able to rest. And, and so this, this is the idea that wraps it all up. This is the idea that, that I'd like to conclude with. This morning, I do have, I do have more. I, I over prepare. I'm sorry, but I'm a nerd. What did she? Say? She said yes eventually. Are you, I need to finish that story. But we're married. We're. I have a ring on my hand when I was telling the story, so of course she said yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to leave you hanging in the balance on that one. I figured that story finished itself. I didn't know that it would be superlative. <laughs> okay. So, 
Thank you. Eventually she did say yes. Um, listen, th- this is the point of, of this passage. A wonderful passage. When you consider the character of your God and the way he acts towards you, the way he, he views you, the, the way that he desires to love you, that, that we can quiet our hearts today, that we can open up our fingers and let go of so many worries and anxieties and just questions about priorities, that this is perspective that we are a fussy child. I don't care what your age is. In the arms of a loving father that's always singing over us if we would just choose to listen. So desperately wants to be not only in in our presence, but to save you if you would let him. You are his joy and his song. He loves us more than we could ever conceive. That there is never a reason to stress or strain that we can get out of our heads, we can get on our knees and see things as they really are. Let's go ahead and end with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your love. I thank you for this love that is surprising and shocking Lord that that is so abnormal for me uh, to receive or even perceive most of the time I, I just can't imagine this love that is so forgiving you're always there you're always ready willing to help Lord, you're rejoicing over us. You're just glad to be in our midst. You desire to quiet us. Lord, our weary and anxious hearts that are so often so overwhelmed by noise, clutter, you can quiet us so that we can hear your song. I praise you. You are so good. And I thank you for this perspective that you've given us in your word that would have never come to my mind if I hadn't read it on a page. Thank you, Lord. I trust this all into your hands. Pray your blessing upon these people. In your name, amen. Amen.